we can all see how conflict affects energy prices. More than ever, we need to be mindful of how we use energy. By reducing your use, you can save money and lessen the impact. Here's how. Use your timer and thermostat to heat your home and hot water to the temperature you need. Use appliances efficiently and, where possible, outside the peak hours of 4 to 7 p.m. Consider walking, cycling or public transport for short journeys. Drive at lower speeds where safe to do so. Government advice and supports are available for homes and businesses to help you meet this challenge. Find out more at gov.ie forward slash reduce your use. Brought to you by the Government of Ireland. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk. I did miss it. It was like my left hand was gone. It was it like was your left crazy. hand was gone. Crazy. And I am left handed. It's very strange. It's very strange. We're so, we're so, you know, dependent on technology now. It's just it's crazy. It's scary to think we're so dependent on Facebook and Instagram. It's, it's, it's scary. And, and you know, I realised last night when I went to bed, I obviously have an addiction because... It was, it was like, well, what's going on? And you kept was, checking. Yeah, yeah and you kept checking, yeah. So it was, it was like, I, I, I never thought I was so dependent on it since, until it went yesterday. And, and then it was like, wow, I obviously have such a... Which you don't think you do, but when it's gone, you're going to go, whoa. So did you pick up the phone and make an old-fashioned mobile phone call or anything like that? Or did you just have withdrawal symptoms? I, I was just like, what's going on? What, what's wrong? There's something wrong. <laughs> that, turn on the news. Turn on the news. See what's going on. The news will tell us. Very strange. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely worried about Instagram. I love Instagram. <laughs> so when Instagram disappeared or you couldn't add to it or see any new posts... I was having withdrawal. She had to talk to me. So that's why I was... She had to talk, talk to, to you? me for a while, yeah. <laughs> instead of going on her phone for six hours, so... She panicked there a little bit, yeah. So you had a conversation with yeah, her? Yeah, first time. We're together three years, and we together. actually had a meal and a conversation. You went out for a meal? No, we sat in and had a meal. You so actually ate and yeah, sat down together, together at the table? Yeah. Together as well. I didn't well. have a phone. Like, <laughs> made a nice change. <laughs> she <laughs> go down my after maybe. <laughs> but it was hard, though. Oh, it was awful. Yeah, it was horrible. I am addicted to it because I like to see, like, updates of... You know, the bloggers and stuff like that so that's why I missed it I was dying to see what everyone was up to Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now how far have we come on issues of race and prejudice? Well on Friday the insightful Emer O'Neill cut to the chase on the hard shoulder. Here's Kieran Cuddihy. What age were you when you were first aware of your differences? Um, I would say f- f- my mum told me I was five when this happened and it, um, she, I was in the bath and she came in and I was trying to scrub my skin profusely and she asked me what I was doing um, and I said I was trying to get the brown off um, and it won't, it won't come off and I was hysterical um, and I think for her, that was what, the what first precipitated time. that. Like, why, why were you like, trying to scrub I, it off? I don't know specifically what happened necessarily that day, but I'm sure it was kind of an accumulation of a build up over mm. my life because she would express that, like, when I was out playing in the estate, let's say, and she'd be with me and trying to make friends, that the N word was said a lot, and uh, you know, some kids just really just didn't want to be associated or near me or touch me. Um, and I think over, you know, five years of my life, I started to realise that and I understood it to be because of my skin. And um, and I think it 
is something that I see reoccur now with my son, which is why it was really important for me to do the work that I've done. Mm. It's it's taken a huge toll on me. You know, we went through a lot of harassment when I started speaking out about um, racism and inclusion here like in Ireland. What? what was that to you? Uh, well, my house was egged. Um, my, there was graffiti all over my town, I'd say in like nine, ten different places um, with my full name written. Um, there was acid thrown on my neighbor's car. Uh, they have an SUV like us, so we thought it must have been. And um, like the guards came up and the sergeant said it was a, a case of mistaken identity. Um, there was graffiti with my name again in my own estate. So, you know, they knew where I lived, which was was really tough you know but saying sorry sorry without prying and without obviously saying yeah. anything too offensive on air i mean kind of even o'neill kind of go home type um, stuff or? it was can i curse i don't know uh shut the f up uh all, all lives all lives matter that was the general consensus of uh every, that was a slogan that was taken on board and just plastered in like one place after another after another after another after another so it was i suppose a way to try and tell me that i needed to be quiet and so instead of doing that i started doing takeovers on instagram on high profile accounts like uh jen Zam- Zam- zambarelli blonde tracy um Catherine Thomas, uh, trying going on the radio and on, in newspapers, and um, and then I actually was asked to come on Homeschool Hub and join in with the Moon Tory there. So now yeah. I, I I was on TV. I was doing all these things that I was was portraying through my work because I was crying out that there needs to be more representation in the media, and it's just it's very difficult. You have to put yourself in the shoes of a person of color living in Ireland. We are a predominantly white country. There is nothing wrong with that. I'm well aware of that. I'm 35 years old, born and raised here in Ireland my mother is white from Wexford and all of my cousins you know that live here in Ireland are all white and I am half white it's not the question of that but it is of for those children uh, and adults in our country that don't look white that they're not being seen in their school books they're not being seen in the media on the television mm. in government positions um, in leadership positions within the Gardaí and the, in, in education even like I had never even had a, a teacher of colour a principal of colour and no one has come back to me and said yes that there is a black um, or black and Irish principal or deputy in the whole country or that there ever has been in Ireland which is staggering in the 21st century you know like I went away got my teaching degree in the States. I played basketball for Ireland. It brought me over on scholarship to the States. I got my master's degree in education, but it wasn't something that I saw. And I said, oh, here's this woman who is now a teacher or a principal and she looks just like me. I want to aspire to be her. I didn't have that. I just made my own destiny. And and do do you think it would be a mistake to suggest that naturally that will just improve if we don't do anything about it. No, well, you see, it won't because here we are 35 years later. Like I was in America for 10 years and I came back and Ireland looked so different. So on the surface, it was so diverse and I was so excited. I remember walking around Dublin city centre being like, this reminds me of London. I could open my eyes right now and I'm actually not sure where I am. This is really cool. But as time went on, I saw that actually everything under underneath the surface was still the same. It hasn't changed. The educational, the, the curriculum is not, it does not suffice for uh, ethnic minority um, background people. There, it just, it, does, it doesn't, it's not accessible. Uh, we still are not studying, you know, the history of slavery. Um, we're, you know, there needs to be programs in place to help teachers to, you know, manage 
topics about racism. For instance, and I'll give you this story because this was mm. powerful to me. Um, a friend of mine, she said that her friend's daughter was a newly qualified teacher and she was teaching. It was one of her first days in the classroom in primary school and a kid piped up and said, Miss, why is Sandra's skin brown and the rest of our skins are white? And she just was stopped in her tracks because she wasn't expecting that. She didn't know how to answer it. Yeah. And she squashed it. She just squashed it. She did a, you know what? Look, sure, we're all, you know, we're all the same. We're all the same. And, and right. So we're going to move on now too, right? And for me, I'm like, this is a moment of learning. This is a time to grow. This is amazing that this question has been asked. There's nothing, it's not an elephant in the room. It's not something that needs to be hushed. The word brown and black are beautiful. I am so happy to be a person of colour. I'm so happy to have brown sorry, skin. What is the answer? Don't I mean, sorry, it. not what is the answer, but yeah. I mean, do, what's the best approach to answer that? Is it the, well, like the scientific approach? Or? Like, you mean, I mean, well, see, this is the thing. This is why, because I've been teaching 12 years and I've never had training in anti-racism mm. or unconscious conscious bias training and I think this is why it's so important that that is given to teachers because how are you supposed to ta- tackle that? Yeah. Exactly. I'd find myself overcompensating and 100%. I'd have a big anthropological chart yes, on the wall and talking about the great migrations or of history. you're going to not want to talk about it at all <laughs> yeah, because you're like I'd, I want to do this justice and I could completely mess this up so I think I might just be quiet and that's yeah. what we don't want. We've got to talk about it. We have to be vocal. We have to be open about it. This super impressive Vimer O'Neill from The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. And if you want to hear Emer's full interview, well, all you have to do is go to newstalk.com. On Tuesday, John Banville joined Pat Kenny on The Pat Kenny Show. Here's a short clip. Now, uh, obviously, you have a fondness for Spain because you have uh, set this book in the Basque country. Yes, I was at a book festival a few years ago down there and uh, I stayed in San Sebastian in a wonderful hotel on the seafront. And uh, I just thought, my goodness, this would be a good place to, to set a book, to get away from the dooms and glooms of Ireland for a while. Uh, so I sent Quirk down there for a little holiday, which, of course, had been a, a mystery novel, ends disastrously. Mm. But uh, he has a good time for a while. Um, but even uh, at the beginning of your book, when uh, we see Quirk and his wife Evelyn uh, in the hotel, I mean, he is almost reluctantly enjoying himself. Oh, yes. Well, he hates being on holiday, but then so do I. I remember years ago, Brian Friel sent me a postcard from France when he was on holiday. He said, here for two weeks, one with good behaviour. <laughs> I knew exactly what he meant. <laughs> well, well, th- that's the point. Some people, I, I think uh, Michael O'Leary famously uh, admitted that he hates holidays, that, uh, that there's nothing he likes more than work, and therefore holidaying is just taking him away from the things he loves, whereas for most people it's vice versa. I'm somewhat surprised to find myself agreeing with Michael O'Leary, but yes, uh, that's how I feel. Um, I think that you have to dislike your job or even dislike your life uh, to enjoy a holiday. I hate being away. Uh, I, I get panic. You know, I wake at 8 o'clock in the morning. I think, my God, what am I going to do all day? You know, I can't spend the whole day at lunch and dinner. I can't spend the whole day in the cafe. Um, so I, I you know, just can't wait to get back and get back to work. And and that is one of Quirk's. In, in, <laughs> that's one of Quirk's observations. That really, uh, in Spain, uh, as he uh, relaxes, so called, that uh, it just seems to go from breakfast to lunch to dinner almost seamlessly. 
Yes, he, he does get into the swing of things after a while. Mm. Uh, I mean, inevitably, that's what you have to do when you're on holiday. Even if you're quirk, you just have to go with it. Uh, otherwise, you go off your, 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 your head. Now, John, it's always difficult to talk about a novel, particularly one that has at its heart a mystery. So um, perhaps you'd like to just tell us as much as you want to about the plot and about the characters, because the first character we meet in the book is not, in fact, in Spain, but in London, a man of Irish heritage, uh, a ne'er-do-well. Yes, Terry Ty is a very, very dangerous character. I hate to confess that I'm rather fond of him. Um, he's a very, very dangerous little man. Um, when I began to write crime books, I, since I was writing crime books, I always had the ambition to write a crime novel without a crime act. And um, in order to write this book, I had to go back and look through various ones. And I discovered that in one of the books, there's no corpse. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll resurrect that character in a new book. And that would retrospectively mean that I've written a novel without a crime in it, uh, if you see what I mean. So, um, Elegy for April turns out to be a novel without a crime in it, because April pops up again in this one. Uh, Quirk spots her in a cafe in uh, San Sebastian and becomes fascinated by her and fascinated by her, her story. She was a friend of his daughter's. And she has dark, very dark background. And that's at the heart of the book. Novelist John Banville from The Pat Kenny Show. Ellen, you had a, a similar experience. Um, hi, Andrea. I, ha- I have indeed. Um, I've had uh, nearly the exact same experience, except maybe a little um, more severe. Um, I got addicted to uh, Norofin Plus. Um and uh, I got addicted to that by taking two tablets and they weren't working fast enough for me because I was going into a class and um, I took another two and I felt this euphoria that I'd never felt in my whole life and uh, I was immediately mentally addicted and um, I just could not stop myself and as it progressed I became physically addicted and we need to educate people like on the fact that this is an illness like once you are physically addicted to an opioid even though it's just codeine you need medical attention and you need it like fast because what happened to me was I went years um, denying it and a lot of people who are addicted to this drug deny it because um, it's not an illegal drug and they don't feel like they're doing much wrong but at the same time it is a secret so they don't want to expose their secret to their family members and have them think differently of them, you know. And so how did you, Ellen, sorry, just because th- that was just something that David mentioned there a few moments ago as well. And, you know, in terms of going to different pharmacies, like, yeah. how did you keep it a secret? Oh, um, it was very hard. It was very manipulative. Um, I completely changed. Like, my whole focus was this this one and only saviour that would you know, uh, quieten my mind and, you know, take away the pain of, like, physical pain and stuff. So I, I I kept it a secret by manipulation, really, but it wasn't a secret towards the end, you know. It was found out, and it was obvious because I was losing a lot of weight. My friends didn't recognise me. And my personality had changed. It had changed from a very outgoing kind of person 
to a very introverted person and I wouldn't speak to anyone for, you know, weeks or months, you know. Um, so it was found out in the end by my own behaviour, but I did manage to keep it a secret for a, a long time. Mm. Were you aware at the time that you, you, you were addicted to it, Adam? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I was, I, I was completely aware and it, it, it was something that frightened me, you know, beyond belief because I was so afraid to admit what I had become. I felt very ashamed of myself. Now I don't, obviously. But back then, I was so afraid of the stigma, you know. Um, so it took me a long time to actually ask for help or, you know, um, do anything like that. But I was definitely aware that I was addicted. I mean, when I didn't take it, because I would try cold turkey, I'd be violently ill, like um, the worst Ill, illness, like, you know, flu, everything. Um, so I knew I was physically and mentally just, yeah. And how, how did you, how did you... I suppose ultimately just kind of stop. I didn't ultimately just stop. Um, what happened to me, Andrea, was um, I actually hit rock bottom. I had hit rock bottom uh, twice before, and you think certain things are rock bottom, like you know uh, your family, you know, saying enough's enough, we can't deal with this, or you know not having somewhere to go or something like that, which I would never have been used to because, um, you know, I grew up in a very good family, you know, and um. Uh, so that wasn't my rock bottom. My rock bottom was actually death because I was brought in uh, to the hospital at four and a half stone. Um, I had my hair was falling out, um, and I was all my organs were failing um, due to norepinephrine. How are you now, Ellen? I'm a year and four months sober. Um, I'm back with my family, my little family, my uh, partner. And my son and um, everything's great and um, I genuinely I couldn't thank um, the hospital uh, Portlaoise Hospital enough you know I mean they, they they listened to me and they looked after me and you know they, they gave me a rope that I could grab mm. to you know before that I had no other option I thought if I withdraw on my own I'm going to die because I'm only four and a half stone but if nobody if I don't I'm not going to get help basically I just felt trapped but right now I'm doing amazingly and the message I would send to codeine addicts is recovery is definitely, definitely positive. Like definitely you can recover from codeine addiction, but it is hard to get away from. It is very hard. Ellen, who called Lunchtime Live on Thursday afternoon. We were actually only talking about um, the price of like getting your car and your theory tests and just the whole process that leads up to even getting a car the price of a car itself and the insurance and then like just the prices of houses and everything like it's cheaper to buy a house than it would to rent given how unaffordable housing rent car insurance the things you've mentioned there are do you see your future in ireland no not at all and especially in um what we're what we're studying as well we're doing norston and um, with the price of like what nurses get paid in Ireland, there's not a hope that if I actually do go into that profession, that I can actually afford to live here. With the amount of like amount of years you'll have to go through in college as well for a nurse, and um, you're paid nothing, and then you're expected to live here on like a terrible wage with the price of everything else that's on top of it. Is it something you've seriously looked into then moving away? Yeah, yeah, no, hundred percent. Like as soon as I'm done college I um, probably will move abroad for a couple of years I don't see it in Dublin unless like something happens over the next few years that brings it down 
But otherwise, I say like a lot of people are going to be moving out of Dublin. And are a lot of young people your age, is that something they are seriously considering now, is, is moving away out of Ireland? I say there are a few because like not everyone can live at their parents forever. So I say a good few are thinking about, oh, well, where are we meant to go? We can't go in Dublin, it's just so expensive. And down the country, like, you don't make as good wage. So I know a few of my friends have actually already moved away to places like Dubai and all, and they make a lot more money and they live, like, a lot nicer than most people here. Like It's definitely an option, yeah. I've been looking at it more and more, especially in the last year, um, with the fact that I wasn't able to find anywhere closer to college that... You know, I'd be looking to move to the likes of either the Netherlands or somewhere like it. You know, definitely would be abroad. It's possibly, hopefully still be in Europe, but, like, you know, at this point, anything's an option because I just can't see it being here. Barry White reporting for The Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cuddihy. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. My name is Jess McDonough, and I'm teaching home economics at the moment. I think bullying is impactful not only in a young person's life, but it carries with them later in life as well. And if we can prevent that in the school level, then hopefully they can have less traumatic experiences and they can grow as humans into responsible, empathetic adults. So the FUSE program is brilliant in teaching the culture of empathy and friendship and anti-bullying in the classroom. And we've started by doing preventative measures so that there is no culture for bullying. We've also created a space for the dialogue of what does bullying look like? What can we do when we see bullying? And just an open space for everybody to be able to speak about it and to call it out when they see it. And just that culture of bullying, it's a 24-hour issue at the moment, nowadays with social media and online. I actually think that this is probably the worst era for bullying that there could ever be. People find such comfort hiding behind the masks, not not our physical mask, but the mask of the internet and being anonymous and being able to just send out hate and bullying in any form that they can online. And this creates this culture where it's acceptable to do this on TikTok, on Instagram, on Snapchat. And unfortunately, that's outside of school. So we need to teach the students that the culture of this bullying is wrong and that they can bring this with them outside of school into what they're doing at home, on their phones, with other people. Teacher Jess McDonough from St Mary's Holy Faith. With interactive workshops and projects, Fuse can help spark conversations that may not be had elsewhere. But to find out how valuable the programme really is, then who better to ask than the students themselves? I'm Gia Sepeda and I'm in fifth year. And I'm Amy Ward and I'm in fourth year. I think that it's extremely important that people understand seriousness of bullying as not only can it impact in a school environment, this can be mentally with that student until they leave school as they continue in their daily lives. I think that trying to prevent it in schools is really important because it makes that student feel a lot more comfortable and that they can go and actually speak to the teachers and not fear coming to school each day as to what these people say or do to them. How important are programmes such as Fuse? I think that programmes such as Fuse are really important as they help bring and spread awareness to schools. They would train teachers to give them what we would consider necessary training to make not only the students but the teachers feel a lot more comfortable in approaching bullying and the student knowing the teacher understands and they know what's going to happen and the plan is there. It would make me feel a lot more comfortable to speak to the teacher if I know they are going to help a lot. Uh, we did um, stuff in second year. We did a rap and we also did a short film. We were put into different groups and we acted out bullying situations 
with like a positive ending. It showed what like bullying situations would look like and how it can be resolved. And we had great fun like doing it, you know. We actually have like a anti-bullying motto, feel safe, be kind. The rap was actually based on that motto. Everybody in the group was like involved in making the lyrics and we had like great fun like picking out the music and everything and it was played over the intercom as well. How do schools get the most out of these type of programs? I think that the programs are really good in terms of again like the teaching and in have, helping people to understand what not only students but even teachers go through and knowing that they can look at websites like this and go to the training and be provided with stuff that it will really help once you learn this in school this sticks with you like I remember in my second year classes two years later I remember sitting with the teachers having the conversations and all of the workshops and the posters and the fun that we had doing it and I remember all and it definitely has impacted in terms of I understand a lot more and I know people's situations from group conversations. So I think we could try to do surveys or anything like that or we actually have smiley week this week like we made uh, little smiley faces around the school to create a more positive environment for us to feel more happy. Students recognising the benefits of opening up and reaching out for support. Members of the Education Committee believe the recommendations set out can be implemented without delay. So for the teachers who are running anti-bullying initiatives today, how important is it for others working with young people to follow suit? It's a feature of life. It's a feature of, of in the lives of children, even you know, at, at primary level, but all through life. It's something that we have to address, we have to look at. And in the modern age where students are, are, are and Everybody indeed is living with social media. It's something that we have to be even more aware of. So the students are interested in something that's going to affect them or their peers. Josh Crosby reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. You've gone with a player that I forgot that you'd actually played with. Uh, Ronaldo. The real Ronaldo. Yeah. The Brazilian Ronaldo. Yeah, the real. <laughs> well, the other ones, yeah, yeah. yeah the other ones did a good job of making himself because, the real Ronaldo. So yeah. you played with Ronaldo right at the beginning at PSV Eindhoven. Yeah. Yeah, because when I joined PSV, Romario, uh, Romario just left PSV Eindhoven. And, and PSV Eindhoven had a connection with, uh, with Brazil. Um, they had some people over there who did the scouting work for them as well. And, and they brought in... Uh, yeah, Ronaldo from Brazil. Uh, and he was there um, already before I joined PSV. But then when I joined PSV and when I played with, with him, you, you see so much quality that was that was really unbelievable. Uh, for a young guy coming from Brazil to Holland, where it was always raining and cold as well. Um, but saying, basically saying before the start of the season, yeah, this season I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to score 34 goals and also achieving that or maybe scoring more and seeing that he, with the ball, he's faster than the majority of the, of the players uh, within the league without the ball and, and you know, getting past four or five plays and still ending up, the ball ends up in the back of the net. Uh, that's, that's unbelievable to see and even in, 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 in training sessions. And then and if you look after when he left PSV, when I went to Barcelona as well and the quality that he showed over there as well, it was really exceptional to, to see a player who was that comfortable with the ball and running forward and being chased by three, four defenders and then still have the composure to uh, to score goals or to give it to somebody else to score a goal. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of uh, of these players, to, uh, to be honest. And he's 18 or 19. He's a teenager in that first season at PSV when he goes and scores 34, 35 goals. 
Uh, yeah, so are you, exactly. Yeah. Are you getting an opportunity to mark them in training? Are you, are you like talk about the best possible education you could ever get, having to be close to Ronaldo and figure out how to stop a player like that? Yeah, no, you, and, 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 and we spoke about it before when I joined United at that time at PSV. Yeah, you train against him, you, uh, you need to take up positions. Uh, uh, he is very unpredictable in what he's doing because that's that's how good he is. You never know in how he's positioning himself. In, in what he's going to do with a lot of strikers, the majority of strikers I've played against, you already know from the start, okay, you know, this guy is looking for this or he's trying to do this or he's trying to drop deeper at certain areas or then making these runs or when he touches the ball, when he controls it, he always, he always does it with the inside of his right foot. But with Ronaldo, you never knew what he was going to do because he was, you know, the quality, his technical ability was so good, his pace was so uh, good as well that you never knew in, in, uh, in the situation when he got that ball what his, uh, what his, uh, his angle was in, in, in trying to uh, free himself up or to make a run or to link up with, uh, with, uh, with players. And that, that was, of course, very good for me to train again uh, against to, to, uh, to these players to, so you can uh, see yourself as well, how you can uh, cope with that, uh, that quality. Uh, the other thing that I need to say uh, at times as well, that Ronaldo, when he came over and it was very cold in Holland, that sometimes in the sessions, he was happy to go off the pitch as well, to uh, to go in, to sit in, in front of the uh, the stove, basically, to right. warm up as well. So there, there were... Uh, yeah, there what, were like, what was like he like as a personality in terms of confidence? Like at, at that age of uh, still a teenager, like was, did he just exude confidence? Was he Did he know he was the real deal even at that stage? Well, he he knew his his, his his ability, his quality. So so he, he was not a player that that needed to work hard in training sessions and to score ten goals in training sessions to have confidence to do it in the game as well. He he went into the training session and he, he did his bits and he did his drills. Uh, like I said, uh, when he, when he came and everybody saw his ability, uh, saw his ability as well. We knew that if if he got that ball in certain areas, that he would score. So so we didn't mind him not to train hard or not to do everything what the coach expected him to do or what we expected him to do because you know with a player like that and it's the same with Ronaldo now at United you know when he gets in areas he's going to score anyway he's going to take the opportunity uh, so that's why you don't mind also running a little bit more for a player like like uh, like him or like them uh, who have that ability as well so so yeah, so he was very confident, and and he just said before games as well, or in training sessions as well. You know, don't worry. You know, the, on Saturday there's the game, so on Saturday I'll be there to show what I can do, and that that's how he. And it, it looks uh, yeah, simple, but that's how, how they play, or he approached that uh, the game as well at times. Nathan Murphy, in former Manchester United, AC Milan, and Netherlands defender Yapstam from off the ball. Extraordinary, extraordinary testimony from Francis Hajin uh, yesterday. Basically, just in, in summary, she said Facebook puts uh, profits before people, harms children, destabilizes democracy, steers younger users to damaging content. It said uh, the Instagram act was like cigarettes for under 18s. She accused the company of literally fanning ethnic violence in developing countries. Uh, it said it, it knows, the company knows its systems lead teenagers to anorexia-related content, intentionally targets teenagers and children under 13, as young as 8 even, and it knows uh, that Instagram damaged teenagers' mental health. And basically, she said, it should be treated like the tobacco industry. It was damning testimony. Now, obviously, Facebook contests all of this, but it was powerful testimony nonetheless, Kira. It was, and... 
terrifying as well because all of us and our children use these these platforms and, and, and you know, they, they, they harvest new children to these platforms, I think, every day of the week. So I think it is terrifying. But in other ways, I feel like it's telling us what we kind of suspected. I, I have long believed that Facebook undermined democracy, uh, was bad for our mental health, manipulated us, created dependencies, senses of inadequacy, all that kind of stuff. I do think there's an addictive nature that you could, yeah, say it is quite like tobacco, like drugs, like alcohol, like any of those and things. And sometimes, in some cases, actively, um, you, you know, if you were to... Th- oh, like, like the tobacco industry, it wasn't just nicotine that was addictive. They added other things to make... I think it is all of yeah. that. I think they want to keep you there for longer. It isn't just that we're... Regardless kind of, of what you're saying. Completely. And I, how I, poisonous that might be. And I think we need to get real and I think we need to regulate that's what I really do think because I do think it's bad for the world for, for I, I think this is huge and I think that they I think Facebook has been kind of gaslighting us and I think she, she went on to say that we have been re- it, it has repeatedly misled the public about how it operates and I think that's true and I get that sense of it and I, and I worry about it for my children but I worry about it for myself I've been and not just Facebook I, I, I you know Twitter I, I know that social media has been bad at times for my own mental health I have felt it and yet I didn't instantly I, I have subsequently but I didn't instantly get rid of it so there is an issue here and what are we doing? We need to regulate this and I suppose you're not a huge social media user. I don't use this really. But I'm sure you must worry about it for your kids and you know it's... Well I, when I hear stuff like this I really worry and I suppose I you know I instinctively felt it wasn't necessarily a good thing although it, it does have lots of attributes as well and we all use it for, for, for positive things but when I hear this testimony it does it's a wake up call for all of us and I mean she sums it up really well. She says we need greater transparency and oversight. We can build sensible rules and standards to address consumer harms, illegal content, data protection, anti-competitive practices and algorithmic algorithmic I can't pronounce algorithms. Algorithmic she says. Algorithmic. System, algorithmic systems and more. That to me sounds like an I think we owe basic. her a debt. I think we the do. world but, but let us know First of all, what, what your view is, you know, on what you've heard, this testimony, this damning, as Shane says, testimony on social media, on those platforms, Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram. But also, have you, have you yourselves been affected or your kids been affected? Have you been bullied? Have you felt your mental health struggle? Tell us how your interaction has been with it or has it been largely positive that it helped you set up your GAA group or whatever. But let us know. 53106 at a cost of 30 cents this morning. We're going to talk about social media. Shane and Kira on News Talk Breakfast. So Bella is a German Shepherd, a female German Shepherd, and she's about 10 or 11 years of age. Now, she's been here for some time. She's so sweet. She's just had a really hard run of it, um, and we're really, really trying to find her a new home now. That's really important. So she's a little bit confused being here. She's getting a little bit down in the dumps. Um, she's been out, you know, on Foster a couple of times, but we just really need to find her now, her forever home. So she has a fatty tumour that's just on her rear end here that... The vets are treating, but they can't operate on it because of where it is. And also, it might just be too much of a risky operation for her at her age. So she's just looking for a nice retirement home, somebody that's going to adore her and love her, um, and a nice couch that she can lie on in the evening times, and she'll make somebody a really, really wonderful pet. So you can find out more about Bella on our website, which is dspca.ie. Bella, you can see a sadness there. Yeah, and I see it every day in some of the dogs here. But if you can see by her body um, and her body language, you know, her tail is in between her legs. Her eyes are a little bit sad. That can change. And all it takes is just that somebody to, to love her and to give her a home and just to take that chance for her because it's so lovely to see the transformation when they do find that right home. But now she's just a bit down in the dumps and, you know, that's... 
it's no no way for a dog to be do you know i love the unique bond that we share with them it's a special one and i've seen it i mean i experienced myself being a pet owner but i see it here every single day the people that adopt pets from us it's a unique bond and it's 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 one that is very hard to to break so when somebody loses a pet the attachment that's broken um they bring so much joy to people's lives and in some cases they might be their only form of companionship um a reason to get up during the day um for children they can be hugely beneficial they bring out a lovely kind of emphatic side to people they're loyal they're so funny especially cats i get great amusement from I my own cats, cats. <laughs> yeah. so we're in the middle of kitten season here so we've lots of cats and kittens going to their new homes today what's important on world animal day which we like to reinforce is that always make sure you neuter um, your pets because there's so many unwanted kittens and puppies and dogs out there so you know neutering is really important and we have lots of neutering campaigns and programs here that we will help people to do that We've a coffee machine here and we've a, a parrot at the coffee machine. What's going on? So this is Pikachu. He's a little cockatiel. So he came in, he was a stray that a member of the public just found and brought him here. Um, and as the weeks went on, we discovered Pikachu was actually a character. He's extremely funny. So he's now living here at the DSPCA. He hangs out in reception. Um, this is his favourite spot. And you can see we've had to cover up the coffee machine because he insists on looking at himself in the mirror every day, all day, wolf whistling at himself. So then he'll fly around, he'll meet members of the public, um, and he'll, he's just great fun. He's a lovely addition to the place. Hello, Pikachu. Did you come to say hello? Come on, baby. Come on. Good boy. You ready? Do you want to say hello? Here he is. And do you know what he does? He'll go straight for my earring. You see, he wolf whistles, which is so funny, but he's not going to do it now. I've had two Jack Russells, uh, mother and daughter, and they're just great little things, such characters with big personalities. You can see a big difference between the mother and daughter because Scarlett was six when we fostered and then adopted her. And not totally sure of her background. She's either come from a puppy farm or she definitely came from a situation maybe where she lived in a yard, was never allowed indoors. So when we first got her, she didn't bark or make any noise. She didn't bark? Yeah, so as time progressed and her confidence built, and her comfort, she like found her voice again, and it was just lovely to see that progress. You can see such a difference between her and Babog because her, her this is her youngest pup. She's had a very normal upbringing, <laughs> really happy, social, and you can just see the difference that like the lifestyle that Scarlett would have had. But it's just lovely to see, you know, her being relaxed and happy, and it's just very rewarding, you know. And what do you love about animals the most on today, being World Animal Day? You know, they're another being and they're another little creature that deserves everything that we have. And I just love giving them that, the best life they can have and happiness and a full belly. I think that's the most you can do. And a full belly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They, they all seem to love their food. That's their common, that's their common love. But yeah, just to make them happy and they make you feel really good. They're really good for your own and... Um, mental health they're really good for your lifestyle it's just good to you know have something else to look after and something else that's important in your life that gives you unconditional love your advice to people 
today if they're struggling with an animal that they got during lockdown what is it talk to us don't suffer in silence um don't you know the, the obvious thing is to give you may want to give up your pet just think of the commitment that you've made at the very start and you owe it to them to do the very best that you can there will be hard times like having a, a dog um or a pet can be hard at times so push through that and you know do what's required to be a responsible pet owner and if you are struggling talk to us pick up the phone go onto our website we've lots of resources and tools there to help people so don't don't immediately come to the conclusion that you need to abandon or give up your pet do ask for help in case you missed it with susan cahill a look back at the week on news talk now when spinal injuries ireland asked me to take part in a day in my wheels i was happy to oblige covid had delayed the plans for a while but This Thursday, I got to give the wheelchair a go. I arrived to CHQ in Dublin for a breakfast and to meet the other participants. And here's how I got on. When you're going up the ramp, sort of move your body weight a bit forward. So when you're you're going to go up the ramp, move your centre of gravity forward so your head is like the heaviest part of your body. So just lean a little bit forward. And then when you're coming down the other side is, is to grip the wheels extremely tight so that you sort of slow the momentum of the chair going downhill. This could be quite a mortifying experience, but it's all an experience. Listen, look, you know, you have to learn somehow, as they say. Okay, here I go. So I'll be behind. I'm here at CHQ in the IFSC here in Dublin. And for Spinal Injuries Ireland, I'm taking part in 24 hours in my wheels. So this is my home for day and night. Once we're in it, we're told to go about our daily lives as best we can, just to try and raise awareness on what a challenge it can be, and it shouldn't be that way. So, uh, Jack Shannon Cole, I'm currently a student with the Institute of Banking. So, Jack, you've just given us our training. Um, What do we need to bear in mind as we go out there? Obviously, health and safety is key, and you've told us... When in doubt, jump out of the chair, don't put yourself in danger. But that's not an option for you. Yeah, so I suppose it's just an experience. Um, it comes it comes with an experience. It takes time to learn how to, to motor around in that sense. But overall, because the, the privilege is there to jump in and out, it is only a crash course because you're only exposed to it for a day or two. So it's taken me years to gather up the confidence and the skill to, to motor around and uh, to go around independently. And that's just... That's part and parcel of the package of being a wheelchair user. It takes time to learn these skills. But um, for yourselves today in the crash course, I find that it's just best to be safe, as you said. And if you are exposed to a situation that you don't feel comfortable, to to take the privilege and to stand up and to to move around that situation. Yeah. So you, as a wheelchair user, how often do you need to ask for help in your daily life or on a night out? Yeah, so... Um, I find that overall it's um, accessibility of infrastructure that is my main concern as a wheelchair user. So it's, uh, you know, there's no lift or there's steps or there's no accessible bathroom. So they would be my primary concerns as a wheelchair user from a from an overall perspective but it depends in, in wh- where I'm going if, if the establishment the venue that I'm going to isn't accessible if I have some good friends with me it'll just be they'll just lift me up and down the stairs but you know not everybody has the privilege of having people with them at that certain time so it, on, a, on a daily basis I don't need any exceptional help but you will find yourself because of the lack of infrastructure and the lack of accessibility the lack of upgrades to the infrastructure, it is it is daunting as a wheelchair user in, in this 21st century we live in. Because something I didn't realise is not only are you robbed of your 
mobility or certain mobilities being in yeah. a wheelchair, but you're robbed a little bit of spontaneity. You have to really plan yeah. every yeah. single journey. Yeah, um, I'm a, I had my injury in 2012. I was 15 years of age, so I, I was young, but like that, as time went on and I, I uh, went through the rehabilitation uh, process and I came back into normal society, if you will, in that sense. Uh, it takes an awful lot of planning and preparation and that's something that just comes part and parcel of being a wheelchair user. Now hopefully in the future, not too far away, that isn't the case where you have to ring up and make sure that the venue is accessible, they have a wheelchair bathroom or whatever the case may be. But in, in today's world, it is the case that you do have to do an awful lot of planning. Like uh, I had to ring up to get the dark this morning. I had to give 24 hours notice just to get here. You know, but you just, you could have just jumped on. It's the difference. And I think because it's Spinal Injuries Ireland, it's a reminder that life can change in the blink of an eye. And something yeah. happened in your life at 15. Yeah, so I had a fall when I was 15. Um, and exactly as you said, that is the case that anybody can have a spinal injury at any point in, in their lives. And uh, it's, 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 not, it's not too uncommon in the, to that extent. I think the year that I had my injury, there was uh, 16 children uh, that year in Ireland who had a spinal injury. In the rehabilitation hospital, uh, the rehabilitative centre, there's only six beds, six paediatric beds. So 16 children in one year, six beds. It's, uh, there, is a, a shot, uh, there is a supply and demand issue there for sure. What a terrific campaign from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. And of course, you can tune into Claire every Sunday morning from 8 till 9. When you uh, tweeted me last night what your favourite movie was, it, it's a humdinger. Will you just tell our listeners? My favourite film, after a little bit of thought, it came to me as a very obvious one. It's one that I've loved since I was a very young teenager when it was first introduced to me by my own father. And it is Carol Reed's The Third Man. Oh, now you're preaching to the converted here. So I don't want to go down, you know, an Orson Welles, Carol Reed rabbit hole because we could. So let's keep it general enough to start with anyway. Just remind people what's going on in The Third Man. Okay, so the third man tells the story of a fella called Harry Lyme, who you don't really see, and this is kind of the genius of the film, you don't meet until maybe not quite half way through the film, you've heard his name. And so Holly Martins is an American pulp fiction writer who arrives in post-war Vienna uh, to, uh, upon discovering that his best friend, Harry Lyme, has died. And as he walks around, he uncovers that not all is as it seems. And so this mystery unravels. Why is it your favourite movie? Oh, for so many different reasons. Uh, one is the cinematography is magnificent. The black and white, the the, the side angles were, you know, like you think the, the filmmaker whose name now escapes me, or sorry, the, the cameraman or the, the director of photography could have used a spirit level where his, all his camera <laughs> angles are all askew. Um, Carol Reed's direction, in, it's, it's a masterpiece of film noir. It's hugely influenced by Roberto Rossellini and the neorealist school that emerged like immediately after World War II. It's based on a screenplay and short story by, written by Graham Greene. It stars Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton, Trevor Howard, and the absolutely beautiful Alida Valley. And all of these factors combine to make this incredibly taut, I want the thriller is is really kind of a reductive phrase, but it's it's a film it's a film really about the human condition as it's been affected by World War II, 
by the Holocaust, by the bomb in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. It's about how man sees himself in the aftermath of these catastrophes, of these terrible, terrible uh, things. And so the setting uh, is really quite beautiful, is set in post-war Vienna, which is reduced to half rubble. It's been divided by uh, into the four powers. So you yeah. have you have the Russian side, the American side, the British side, and the French side. And the city is kind of torn between these four sides. And the action takes place in between though these post-war tensions and, yeah. and it's an extraordinary extraordinary bit of filmmaking yeah and vienna just it makes you want to go there this kind of dark but beautiful mm. f- city s- full of spies and that gorgeous gang gang, gang theme tune the, the the sitar i think it is I fr- the zither yes zither, i forgot yes, to mention sorry. anton karas's zither which um, Carol Reed heard him play an instrument, the instrument that I presume nobody had ever heard of beforehand. And, and that I still sudden, can't even pronounce. <laughs> and all of a sudden he goes, right. I, and if you think about it, the entire soundtrack of the film is just Anton Karras's zither. That's yeah. it. There is nothing else. And, and he, he builds the tension. He has this memorable theme music that then later influenced Nino Rota, who then wrote the Godfather music. So, so from this film, you can draw threads that that bring us into you know into the kind of the the, the big big films of modern cinema. And um, what I like also is 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 that it's very much a Graham Greene film as mm-hmm. much as it is a Carol Reed direction. But so you have Harry Lyme, Orson Welles, who's this unlikely antihero yeah. in that. So what he what he is engaged in is is uh, taking penicillin, diluting it, and then selling it on the black market, which leads to terrible illnesses and children with meningitis. And so, the crimes of which he is guilty are repulsive, and yet this character that you meet as the light shines on his face and a mm. cat kind of is curling around his feet, and this little small smile, and straight away you're kind of drawn into this character who, who, as I said, whose crimes are terrible. And, and what it does is it encapsulates what green is trying to do is, 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 I guess, write this parable of conscience of betrayal of no moral absolutes and, and mm. which reflects green's own struggles with his own Catholicism. And, and, and the idea that like there's this wonderful moment and the famous scene obviously is when uh, Joseph Cotton, the Holly Martin's character, the naive American and Harry Lyme are up on the wheel in the mm. Prater in Vienna. And, uh, you know, Harry Lyme points down, look at, the, look at all those people below. They just look like ants. And he mm. goes, what, you know, would you really care Holly if one of them just stopped moving? If I paid you 20,000 pounds or whatever it was, and there's this line then, he says, nobody thinks in terms of human beings. Governments don't. So why should we? And as I said, in the aftermath of the Holocaust, in mm. the aftermath of the dropping of the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that's the horror. It's the horror of Lord of the Flies. Yeah. yeah. It's that horror that says, we, we go on, but all of these moral absolutes that we took as given going back into the middle ages have now been completely eradicated. So mm. how do we, how do we proceed? And I think the third man is this extraordinary kind of picture of that terrible moral crisis. 
What an interesting choice of movie. Travel writer and broadcaster Fionn Davenport from Screen Time with John Fardy. And of course, you can tune into John every Saturday evening from 6 till 7. OK, I'm going to leave you with now Simon Tierney and stuff that changed the world. Have a great weekend. Now, uh, and with many other products we've spoken about, war really helped Wrigley. It really did. Um, Wrigley, William Wrigley exclusively provided free chewing gum to the GIs during World War One in the European theatre. They inevitably passed it on to local people in France, Belgium, etc. And then chewing gum went international. Um, I was curious to know about when bubblegum came in, Sean. And we do know that from 1928, we see the first bubblegum being invented. What is bubblegum? Bubblegum is essentially a less sticky, more flexible form of chewing gum, which Mm. allows you to to blow bubbles. And William Deemer, who was working for a, a, a chewing gum company called the Fleer Chewing Gum Company, he came up with it in the 20s. The first one on the market was Double Bubble. But it was Hmm. Wrigley's again who created the one that went stratospheric. And that's one that arrived on Irish shores and was very popular when I was a kid. Hubba Bubba. Yes. And the way they sold that is interesting. The tagline, the original tagline was big bubbles, no troubles. And the reason for that was because (laughs) a lot of bubble gums at that time exploded just at the point where you were hoping they wouldn't. Mm. And you got a whole face full of chewing gum that yeah. you had to ask your friends to peel off your skin. Yeah, so Which they wouldn't. <laughs> they just stand there and laugh at you. <laughs> yeah. It was about who could make the biggest bubble. So Hubba Bubba was the one that was very popular here. Right. Yeah, and probably still is. I, I think it still yeah. is. Yeah, I imagine it would be. Uh, and yes, finally, uh, walk and chew gum at the same time isn't actually the phrase. That no, was made. it's not. Um, Anyone who's up with their presidential history or has seen any biopics of Lyndon Johnson will know that he was quite a rough and ready and foul-mouthed character. Um, And he famously described future president Gerald Ford, who was who took over after Nixon. um, He described he said that he was so dumb he couldn't even fart and chew gum at the same time. And the U.S. media changed the quote to walk and chew gum at the same time for purposes of decency. Yeah. But at the same time, as we now know, chewing gum cures farting. So it it wouldn't have happened anyway. (laughs) In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.